I feel extra happy this morning and I don't, it's not caffeine, it's not any pharmaceutical, I don't think it's the weather, I don't know, I like, I do like Pentecost, I got to admit, um, and the three songs we sang, they're, they're all in my like top five, and I'm, I'm just loving, um, open up the heavens, um, we want to see you. Like that's the craven um, desire of humanity. We want to see God. It's like outrageous. And, and the Hebrew scriptures um, reflect this desire as much as any sacred texts do. Um, Job wants to see God, you know, in the flesh, I will see God. He's like, I'm determined I'm going to see God. But it turns out that like seeing God is kind of an interesting phenomenon. And if we think of it as perceiving God, it's, uh, it's not simple. It's like, uh, it takes us like our whole life to figure out what does it mean to see God and God shows up in ways that at first God's not recognized and later God is recognized. And um, Pentecost is all about that, all about that process. Um, so our reading today was from uh, the first Pentecost for the Ecclesia, for the church. There had been many Pentecosts in the Jewish um, history, a festival of Israel. Um, Pentecost in the Christian tradition happened 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. So it's very much tied into those events. And um, it, it, the, the reading is on your program. If you want to familiarize yourself with it, Noah did a great job reading but what happened on Pentecost is what always we're trying to understand. Uh, no less this year, uh, Pentecost was a group mystical experience, not, not an individual uh, experience alone, but it was a, individuals having a mystical experience, but the group together was having an analogous experience. So that's quite extraordinary. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of uh, testimony in the human tradition of individuals having mystical experience, but it's kind of another thing when a whole bunch of individuals together have a very analogous experience. So this is what we're dealing with here. Um, there's, uh, how is it described? It's, it's very hard to describe mystical experiences, so we, we grasp for things. It's described here in Acts 2 as the sound of a violent wind. So it's the sound more than the feel of the breeze per se, it seems like, most literally. Um, and then small flames uh, of fire appear over each person. Presumably in a way that everyone could kind of recognize it happening. And then they all start speaking in languages that they haven't learned, that they don't know. But these languages are recognized by the various native speakers of all these languages from the Jewish diaspora that is all gathered together in Jerusalem for the festival of Pentecost. So there were Jews and many, you know, every nation under heaven that was known at that time and their native language was the language of that place. And some of the scholars might have known Hebrew, maybe some of them if they had relatives in Israel or Palestine would have known Aramaic, they might have known Greek, but there were all these other languages represented in the pilgrimage 
pilgrims surging in for the festival. And these were the languages that were spoken by about 120 men and women who were mostly from the northern region of Israel, from Galilee, which wasn't known for its like multiple language institutes or uh, center of higher learning and that sort of thing. Um, So it's very difficult to make sense of mystical experience especially as an outside observer. So Luke, who's the author of Acts, the author of the Gospel of Luke and Acts, probably the same person, it's known as Luke Acts, um, he gives us two different um, reaction shots. So in film, a reaction shot is when something so amazing or sometimes so like horrible happens that the filmmaker doesn't dare like show it directly in a direct shot of the thing happening and so the film director has a trick and will show a reaction shot someone observing or witnessing the amazing or the horrible thing and then they their their face lights up with horror with wonder with surprise or curiosity or whatever it is and somehow we we infer as the audience what the thing is by the reaction shot that the filmmaker has given us Um, if we read further in acts 2 than noah did today um, we see that shortly after this phenomenon happened, this group mystical experience, it was a kind of a tumult, there were all this speaking aloud going on, people around started recognizing their, their own native language, they draw closer, a crowd envelops the 120, so it's already kind of big to begin with, it gets bigger and bigger, and once that crowd has formed, Peter, the lead uh, apostle or disciple um, gets his speak up voice back. So it says, Peter standing with the 11, we didn't have this in the reading, this is further, raised his voice and addressed them. These people aren't drunk, it's only nine in the morning. This is the work, and so I was like, well, you could be drunk at nine in the morning, but whatever. Um, This is the work of the Spirit poured out on all flesh, as Joel the prophet foretold. And he goes on, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you saw teaching and doing his deeds of wonder around here, was crucified, like recently, but God raised him from the dead, declaring his innocence, and this is his Spirit being poured out. So this is Peter's big speech. So June is Pride Month and Pentecost is like Peter's coming out day. Um, But to understand the significance of what's happening to Peter under the influence of this phenomenon, um, let's wind it back to the night Peter lost his speak-up voice. Peter lost his speak-up voice the night that Jesus was arrested. And uh, Jesus was taken to the high priest Caiaphas's um, courtyard for an initial interrogation. Peter, with his colleague John, John seems to have had some connections to the priestly family in or group in in Jerusalem. Peter does not. Um, Peter follows along with John to that courtyard where the interrogation is happening, um, and he's within eyeshot or earshot of Jesus. 
And a female slave recognizes Peter as he's warming his hands around the fire. If you remember that scene as a disciple, it's affiliated with Jesus, which is like dangerous because Jesus is being like charged by Rome with insurrection. You don't want to be associated with Jesus when that's happening. And when Peter is confronted by this slave woman um, out loud, uh, accusingly, it seems like, um, he denies knowing Jesus. Uh, to save his own skin. So sometimes speaking up uh, takes courage that we don't have. And we've probably all been in that situation where the situation called for us to speak up and we froze. And we realized, oh, that took some courage or some quickness of thought or, or facility with the language that I don't possess and I miss that moment. We all have had that experience where we lose our speak up voice. And this is a very significant that Peter lost his speak up voice because what's going on here we know is like a scapegoating event and all it really takes to scapegoat a person or a, a minority group of people is when a minority of people usually allied with some kind of power in the structure, in the system, political power, or some other power source. When a minority of people allied with some power source, um, empowered by a fearful majority who are silent, who lose their speak-up voice, that's what it takes for a scapegoating event to, to happen. And Peter was swept up into this contagion against his will, but in line with his short-term interests, like the moment, you know, it served him in the moment. The next thing that happens the next day is Jesus is crucified, Roman form of lynching, as were thousands of, of other Jewish, mostly young men in his lifetime. But then, um, on the third day after that lynching, um, rumors start circulating in Jerusalem. Um, that Jesus is risen and no one quite understands what that means but the rumors are buttressed by the fact that the tomb where Jesus was laid and it was a public event and it was guarded and all that is empty so there's a big hubbub about is Jesus risen and then according to the gospel accounts and um, here and elsewhere Jesus is appearing like manifesting his presence his newly risen from the dead presence to um, little groupings of the disciple, or one or two here, one or two there, often behind closed doors. Now, on the 40th day after the resurrection, during this weird period where Jesus, or reports of Jesus appearing, like in and out uh, to different people, his disciples, on the 40th day, in one of the big appearances, which turned out to be the last of this variety, he gives some final instructions. Uh, the instructions are, go to Jerusalem, I think this happens in Galilee, and go to Jerusalem and wait for the power of the Spirit to fall on you, and then he lifts off, he ascends. And this happened on a Thursday, and so in the church calendar, it's observed on a Thursday. And so we kind of ignore the ascension. <laughs> we, we just ignore it. Nobody really, we're kind of embarrassed by the ascension. And it happened on a Thursday. We're getting together on Sundays. We just barely notice the ascension. It's pretty important because you want, if you like Jesus, 
You want to keep track of where is he? <laughs> right? Where is he? And the ascension answers that question like, where is he? Now, again, mystical experience account says that um, he, he was lifted up in their presence and he entered a, a cloud, like a low... This is mystical talk in the Bible, by the way, that God is always appearing in clouds of thick darkness and something like this is happening and then he's no longer visible. Some of you know I'm a little on the nerdy side. I'm going to say two nerdy things, but it helps me understand the ascension and it won't last long. If you were to translate this into the language of modern physics, like what happened when he ascended, we would say that he leaves our four-dimensional space-time frame and he enters into a fifth-dimensional space-time frame. Which, if you have a sense of modern physics, you know that there's this idea that there are these other dimensions which interpenetrate our four dimensions and are beyond our dimensions that we're just not, we don't have the radar to detect. But but it's been established by experiment that these, these sorts of things seem to exist. This is the nerdiest part I'm going to say, and then I'll be done with this one point. There's a book called Flatlanders, and it's a, it's a, it's a story about humans who live in two dimensions, and we're asked to imagine what it would be like to live in two dimensions only. That's why it's called Flatland. So the two dimensions are what? Width and length. And there are rumors in Flatland, to the Flatlanders, that there's a third dimension. But nobody really believes there's a third dimension, you know. But I think the character in Flatlands, he kind of pops up into the third dimension. Now, the third dimension would be height, right? So length, length, width, or breadth, and then height. If you imagined yourself in two dimensions only, that third dimension, theoretically, it would be like infinitely close but it would also be kind of inaccessible. So this is how I picture in my pea brain the ascension that Jesus like popped into whatever surrounding dimensions to our four dimensions. And he's infinitely close, but he's invisible. He's not accessible in the normal way. The final nerdy thing I'm going to say is that the ancients had a different um, view of the heavens. When we talk about the heavens, we mean a certain thing, like the heavens, we have space and the moon and astronauts. And the ancients had a very different view of the heavens, and the heavens were much closer in their understanding. And there were seven layers to heaven. All the way to, to the air-filled space around us was considered like the first heaven. So we're breathing right now. We're right now. Touch that. That's the first heaven. It's like nearby and then there's layers going up. And the seventh heaven was like just beyond the uh, view of the naked eye. So it's like you'd see birds flying way up high and they would be like, wow, they're in the highest heaven over there. And then there's one more layer and that's where God is and the angels and all that stuff. But we just can't see it. But if you understand, if you had that sense of the heavens, there'd be a much more close of a sense of close connection to the heavens. So Jesus popped into this 
highest heaven, I guess you'd say, in that old language. The point is, wherever Jesus went in his ascension, people expected him to be nearby, even though he wasn't visible. And they had a way of thinking about this that made sense to them. That wasn't just like Bible stories, fables. And he makes his personal presence known 10 days after the ascension on Pentecost. You're like, finally, he's back to Pentecost. Maybe the sermon can end because it's on Pentecost Sunday. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, I'll give you more credit than that. Give myself more credit than that. Now, we say that Peter lost his speak-up voice just before the crucifixion. We hear Peter speaking several times before Pentecost, after the resurrection, but we never hear him in, in public. He never is depicted as speaking when there's a social cost to his speaking. Um, He's always among friends. He's often behind closed doors when he's speaking. But on Pentecost, Jesus, just beyond the reach of the ordinary senses, but nearby, sends his spirit, and Peter gets his speak-up voice back. And now, for the first time, he's able to do what he couldn't do before, which was speak up on behalf of his friend who was being scapegoated. And he did that in the presence of a crowd, not knowing if the crowd would turn on him like the crowd had turned on his friend. So remember, Pilate, who condemned Jesus, the Roman governor, is still the governor. Herod is the you know, client king of Rome. He's still the client king of, of, uh, of, of Israel. The religious politics are the same as they were 50 days earlier. The crowds are crowds like crowds are. They're as fickle as ever. None of that has changed, but something's happened to Peter. So, first reaction shot is telling us the Spirit, when the Spirit comes, Spirit enables us to speak up when speaking up is called for. This is what the Spirit does. The Spirit enables us to speak up when speaking up is called for and the fact that it took so much it was like noisy sound of rushing wind and all this like intense mystical experience is like the the text way of saying it's a big deal to have the power to speak up when speaking up is called for um, so I, I host with uh, my wife, Julia, we host a monthly dinner called uh, Parent Allies and Friends. And here's the group. It's, it's um, parents of LGBTQ kids who are committed to being allies to their kids, but the parents um, were, were part of conservative religious backgrounds where it's a big deal that their kid is coming out as gay or trans or whatever. But these parents are committed to becoming allies for their, for their kids. And they're working through their stuff inside their heads about that and what they learned growing up and the church that they were part of and all that stuff. It's very fraught. And then there's a, a few um, gay members of the of the congregation whose uh, families are not supportive of them. 
It's kind of magic when you get these groups together, you know, because the parents, they, their gay kid or their kid in transition is usually not part of any church, you know, for understandable reasons. But they, it's important to them. And then we have gay adults whose family is not supporting them, but they're coming to a church and they kind of get together and they can make some really important, I'd say emotional, emotionally important connections in that thing and and around dinner and afterwards we're like telling our stories and our stories are always something about how it's really hard to get your speak up voice you know like these parents are trying to figure out how can I get my speak up voice you know when it's time to have the next big family thing and 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 I know that the the aunt and the uncle and the grandpa and the grandma are going to be having a big problem with the kid who's in transition or whatever it is and and they're they're strategizing about how to do this and and we're hearing stories from from our our gay uh, members who are part of the group of like what a big deal it was for them to get their speak up voice when they had to acknowledge that they're gay or whatever whatever it was to themselves and then go through the hard process of telling a, like a non-supportive family member or talking to a pastor or whatever and, and both these groups are dealing with the same fundamental issue which how do you get your speak up voice and it's it's not easy it takes a lot so this is a speak up moment obviously in our country right just for a, a moment um, this is June. On the same weekend in June 2015, I think it was like June 26, when the Supreme Court announced the um, decision on uh, marriage equality. Remember that? You know, I think it was a Saturday. Was it a Saturday? I think it was a Saturday. The same day, Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, was having nine funerals. Why were they having nine funerals in one day, including the pastor? Because nine members of the church were meeting at a Bible study at Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. And a newcomer, a young white man, came to the Bible study for the first time. And when the group bowed their heads for opening prayer, the white guy, young guy, starts up and starts shooting everybody. And he's spouting off his white supremacy rhetoric which I'm not going to dignify by repeating. So in 2018, when white supremacists were marching on Charlottesville, North Carolina, our president defended them as, well, they're, they're good people too. And, you know, now speaking as a white person to my white friends, many of us are part of extended families who have the same, like, view of things. This didn't come out of nowhere. And so there are times when we need to speak up even when it's awkward. It doesn't mean we have to win any arguments. It just need to speak up sometime. Like white supremacy really bothers me. It's on the rise and it's distressing to me. Hate, hate crimes are on the rise in our country and it's distressing to me. Awkward moment in family dynamic. Okay. It's okay to have an awkward moment for a good reason in a family. It's not about winning any arguments. It's just about self-defining and say what you want to say. Now, many times in the course of our lives when we need to speak up, it's hard and we need the Spirit's help. 
I don't want to limit this to these kind of situations. Now, I grew up in a family where you learn not to express need or ask for help directly. You, that's kind of a normal thing in a family to express need and ask for help but not all families are normal. <laughs> and um, I grew up in a wonderful family, but they had this weird thing about you don't really express your needs and you don't ask for help directly. Um, recently, maybe a month or so ago, I was having some acute emotional distress. I'm better now, not to worry. Um, I, I was having trouble sleeping, I was having nightmares, and I realized through some reflection that I needed some help from a particular group of friends. These were like pastor colleagues beyond our, our church. Uh, but they, they didn't know, they could help me process some stuff and I needed to process it with them, but they didn't know it. They didn't know it because they were used to seeing me as like the, Ken can handle anything. He's the together guy. He's like, boom, and you know, we just so admire your courage and blah, blah, blah. And one of my pastor colleagues gave me this thing, and I'm like, they don't understand. I, I'm hurting. I need to, like, I need to stop the subtle, like, hey, I could use a little help. And, like, I wrote an email. And basically the email was like, hello, I'm hurting. I need your help. Pay attention to me. That's a very hard email for me, to, for me to write because I was violating one of my like family rules about you don't do that sort of thing. So sometimes speaking up is a really big deal. So that's one reaction shot. Mealy mouth Peter growing some ovaries and finding his speak up voice. Something we all need. Second reaction shot. Um... So you got 120 Jewish men and women, mostly from the northern regions there, who speak maybe some Greek, probably some Aramaic. And they're all speaking simultaneously in languages of the various pilgrims from around the empire, Jewish pilgrims who have different primary uh, languages. Here's where I get to share some of my Pentecostal stuff. So if you're, how many people we're part of a Pentecostal or charismatic church, if you wouldn't mind just identifying. Yes, it's a good, it's getting, I, I raised my hand too. Um, there's two forms of speaking in tongues that Pentecostals and charismatics know about. One is making sounds with meaning that are unknown to the speaker and they're unknown to anyone else around you. So this is the most common form of speaking in tongues. My, I've mentioned before, my wife Julia is an Episcopal priest. She has no interest whatsoever in speaking in tongues. <laughs> like, she just, she has other ways of getting the spirit. And they work for her. And like, speaking in tongues is just like not on our radar when we were courting and getting to know each other and whatnot. I told her, you know, I speak in tongues sometimes. <laughs> Are you, you okay with that? She says, what's that like? And I said, well, I could teach you how to speak in tongues. And she's gone. Oh, no. I just said, say, she bought a Honda. She bought a Honda. She bought a Nissan. She bought a Nissan. She bought a Hyundai. She bought a Hyundai. I said, you just repeat that a few times. She bought a Honda. She bought a Nissan. She bought a Hyundai. And you're on your way to speaking in tongues. And 
I wasn't even just tongue-in-cheek because in Pentecostal and charismatic settings, you learn how to speak in tongues from other people around you who are speaking in tongues. And you hear it and you kind of say secretly, well, I can do that too. And you do it and you're kind of playful about it because the, the setting is designed for playfulness or like that. And you speak in tongues. And like for me, I enjoy doing that from time to time. And I don't, I don't think it's this marvelous, extraordinary, miraculous gift. Jesus didn't seem to speak in tongues. Um, Paul did, but he had kind of mixed feelings about it. And it's just, it's called the least of the gifts. But anyway, there's that kind of speaking in tongues. And then there's the much more rare form of speaking in tongues where someone does that, is speaking in a language that they don't know, but they're speaking in a known to somebody else language. And then that person hears it and it's like, wow. I've had like a couple of stories where I've heard of that and I've chased down the details that I, I know that that from, from my experience that that has happened. I've heard about this and uh, found some credible witness to it, but it's very, very rare. Very, very rare, even in Pentecostal and charismatic churches. So my recent speaking in tongues story, um, as I'm visiting Ben um, and his husband Steve in the hospital recently, and um, Ben was just there for some tests. Everything worked out great. He's fine. He's here today. Don't worry about Ben. But Ben is one of my Pentecostal friends. So he grew up in a, in a Pentecostal church. And we trade Pentecostal stories. And we enjoy some Pentecostal things like speaking in tongues. And so I went to visit um, ben and his husband in the hospital, and I wanted to pray with them. And I'm like, I have to speak in tongues. I'm praying over Ben, you know. And so <laughs> I'm put my hands on his shoulders, and I'm Shibata Honda, and I'm, I'm praying in tongues. And Steve, who's just the dearest man, he's Steve is Jewish, and like he's just he's, he doesn't have any dog and all these Christian fights about tongues and whatnot. He's just curious, and he loves Ben. And Ben speaks in tongues. And so he takes the occasion after we're done praying to say, what was that? <laughs> like, how did, how did you do that? And what was that? And I'm trying to explain. Well, he just kind of say, she bought a Honda and, you know, whatever. And it's just this thing that sometimes people do. And I like to do it. And Ben likes to do it. And, and we're talking about this. And while we're talking about this, and it was just playful, um, a nurse walks into the room. It was Ben's nurse. He's the patient in the hospital. He's also a, a nurse at the, at the same hospital. And I kind of playfully, I'm in a good mood after all this tongues talk, and the nurse comes in, and I say, you take good care of this man. This is a good man, you know, like you sometimes do. And she's like, she starts raving about Ben, this nurse does. Because she, she's apparently the president of the Ben is the best nurse at this hospital club. And she just adores Ben. And she's just talking about how awesome Ben is. Well, this gets my dopamine going because she likes Ben. I like Ben. And she's talking about it. And she's, you know, talking freely about it. And it, it's obvious that she's from another country, I'm guessing, from India. And we got into a conversation, this nurse and I. And um, I asked her where she's from in India, and she says, Kerala. And I said, oh, you speak Malayalam, don't you? And then I sang a song that I knew in Malayalam. Malayalam. And I was like, 
Yesu mari anike, Yesu mari anike, Yesu mari anike, neikum. And Yesu matra mari anike, neikum. It goes on like this for a little bit. I learned this in 1972 because I had a Pentecostal mentor who was from Kerala. And they used to sing this song in this little Bible study, and somehow it stuck. And here it is, like decades later, and this song just pops into my mind, and I'm singing it in Malayalam. Now, you can imagine Ben's husband, Steve. <laughs> you know, like he's like, oh my God, I have to assure him, no, I know this. I know this song from learning it. So, but the interesting thing was how moved the nurse was when I was singing that little song in her native language, and she said, you, I have been here for years. No one has ever said anything in my, to me in my native language. Like, that was so beautiful. And she's like getting misty-eyed, and I'm seeing how meaningful this is that I'm singing a song. It was a worship song in her native language, Malayalam. And that helped me to see the story of Pentecost from the perspective of how did those people feel who were hearing these Galilean Jews speaking in their native language when they were like outside, away from their homeland. It made them feel very good. It made them feel very good. That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit finds the outsider and moves on the insider so that the insider can reach out beyond their like limited frame of reference and find a way into the outsider's frame of reference and do the work of that and then say something from within that frame of reference. This is what the parent allies and friends are doing in, in that group. They're like, oh, my child is gay. I, I didn't even know about this. I, I, don't, I don't know what that means. I, I don't know how to think about it. I'm like, what would the experience be of, of someone who is gay? But this person's my child, and then they... they build a bridge and they try to cross it to understand what their child is experiencing. That's, that's what's going on. That's the miracle of Pentecost kind of happening in slow motion in, the, in those parents. But guess what? It's like any parent has to do this. You don't need a gay kid to do this. Like to be a parent is to like understand that this other person that is your child that you think you pass everything you know on but they have their own thoughts and their own culture and their own whatever and you have to kind of figure it out and my grandson Isaiah I don't see him very often and he he was visiting me once um, a few years ago and I said what kind of music are you into Isaiah and he says oh I love Lamb of God and I'm thinking Isaiah I thought Isaiah was was atheist and and he's liking Christian worship music, Lamb of God. And I said, well, tell me more, Lamb of God. And well, Lamb of God is like a death metal group, you know. And he's 
says, he says, do you know Lamb of God, Grandpa? And I said, well, I consider myself a close friend of the Lamb of God, as a matter of fact. And so he showed me some of this Lamb of God music, and he pulls it up on his phone, and I'm listening to it, and I'm realizing this is my opportunity to enter his world. So I, I, so I go and I download this Lamb of God song. And I spent like a week listening to Lamb of God and asking him about what are those vocalizations the guy's making? And he says, it's like, it's like control burping. That it, and I'm like, wow. And then I'm listening to the... That's, there's virtuoso music in the Lamb of God that is just of a different sort. I found myself liking the Lamb of God a little bit for the sake of my grandson. And, and we were chatting about it and I was telling him my responses to it and we, we made a connection. I was speaking in tongues. This is what it means for one human being to love another human being. And you know, Augustine, the North African bishop, Everyone is trying to figure out the Trinity, the difference between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Augustine came up with this thing where he said, the Spirit is the love between the Father and the Son. So the Father has always loved the Son. The Son has always loved the Father. And the Spirit is the love between the Father and the Son. And so this is what I see happening on Pentecost is God coming to us in such a way that we can make those connections across the boundaries of our very limited awareness. And uh, I think I done, I'm probably finished five minutes ago, so I'm going to end. And I have a really great final story that you're not going to hear. Um, <laughs> um, save it for another time. Let's have our reflection time. Um, this is a reflection having to do with a, a, a concrete, um, visible image of the Spirit coming to us, filling us, and influencing us. So just run with this, and I'll, I'll guide you as you go along. You might want to just take a couple of um, relaxing deep breaths in through the nose, out through the mouth, get comfortable in your chair there. And now I just invite you to take a minute to do some thinking and just to identify or to name or to describe an issue you're facing in your life right now where you feel kind of stuck. That the point of this thinking is not to figure out the issue, it's just to identify it, name it, describe it. This could be a relationship that feels stuck. You don't know how to proceed in the relationship. Some frustration there. Could be a decision that you're facing. You don't know the way forward. You've been going around and around. It's not clear. Could be some just situation where you feel a need for a fresh perspective. Just identify one of those. Take a moment. Okay, let's just assume you have something close enough to a 
something here is on your mind here. Now, what I want to suggest you do is not think about that issue or ask God to like give you a new perspective on it, but make that more concrete, which is what happens in the Hebrew Bible especially. Picture your current response or perception about that issue or that situation or that relationship as if it were a dried out sponge. So your response, you're just picturing as a dried out sponge. So just take maybe 30 seconds to try to picture that dried out sponge. Just focus on that sponge, not the issue, the sponge. Okay, so you've got a sponge in mind that you're picturing. Now just ask the Spirit to come in the form of moisture or water or fluid of some kind to soften the sponge, make it useful, give it a good soaking. And again, don't think about the issue per se. It's now the sponge. Picture moisture, water, whatever. Filling up the sponge, making it soft and moist again. Okay, that was the exercise, by the way. So if you, if you want to, over the next week, I'd just suggest you take a minute or two every day, picture the sponge, understand it represents this relationship or this situation or this struggle. Picture water coming into the sponge and then see if you have like any different new thoughts or perspectives like after a week of doing that. The trick will be not to think about the issue. You're already doing plenty of that already, but to just picture it as a dry sponge and repeat that, repeat that little exercise and see what happens. Okay.